everybody. Hello. Welcome back to the Playwrights. I'm Will. And I'm Sarah. And this is our little podcast about, about big, big plays. plays. And boom, we... boom, 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 Oh, gosh. How are you today, Sarah? I'm okay. We're recording this in the morning, which we don't usually yeah, do. Yeah, usually it's in the evening. We're feeling a little looser, but... um, peppier. Will and I are packing to move, which if any of you have ever packed to move in your entire life, you'll know how stressful and exhausting and, a, and a, what a weird time it is. It is a weird time. It's um like you're, It's almost like you're packing up your entire life and moving it across the country. Yeah, that's what it feels like, and I'm just Which having... Is, I mean, like, that's literally what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just having a hard time with it. Yeah, because we still have, like, a good amount of time before we leave, but at the same time, like, we need to make sure that we're, like, really, really ready to go. We need to be very coordinated. You, you know how you have a wedding planner? We need a moving planner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but whatever. We're doing fine. We're doing fine. We're doing fine, and I'm excited to record this little podcast about this great play. Yes. Um, do we want to do any cheerful small talk before we get into it, or? As Andrew Wright says. No. No small talk. No small talk. <laughs> no, let's get right into it. Yeah, let's um, get right into it. The play we're talking about today is a fantastic play called, uh, the play we're talking about today is a fantastic play called Straight White Men by Young Jean Lee. Sarah, why don't you tell us about her life and what's what's she up to? Oh my gosh, I would love to. So she is a Korean-American playwright, director, and filmmaker. She was born in South Korea and moved to the U.S. when she was only two years old. She grew up in Pullman, Washington, which is a very small, very white town. When it was when it has made the news, it has often been for its racism. Really? Yes. Which like, did, um, did she give any examples? She did actually. So um, there's a harassment of black students and faculty and staff members at Washington State University, which is where her father um, taught chemical engineering. Hmm. But in the 90s, it was uh, remembered by some as the black exodus because a bunch of the students and faculty left the school because of how racist it was. The University of Washington? Yeah, or or Washington Washington State State University. Uh. Yeah. In more recent years, members of the College Republican Party erected a symbolic border wall on campus, much like the one Trump once. And the group's president marched in last year's white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. So it's a pretty racist town, one might say. (laughs) Well, it's known for its racism. Not everyone in town is probably racist. No, I mean, surely not. But There are a few struggling. Yeah, way to be subtle about it. Yikes. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, young Jean Lee, she spent her childhood and much of her adolescence in intense isolation. Because of this, she described it as she wasn't even considered human. And she didn't want to be like... In that category, she wanted to be someone who was, like, viewed as equal, obviously, (laughs) as one would. She didn't really know what was going on. She thought something was wrong with her, like, personally because of how she was treated um, by other students. And so... So it really does, I mean, like, wear on you, like, that isolation and that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And she said she often went home with stomach aches to avoid it all. 
And her mother remembers this too. It's really sad. That is really sad. Does she, are her parents immigrants? Did you say that? Yes. So they are from, so they moved from South, or she was born in South Korea and she moved to the U.S. when she was two. Got it. So, yes. So Lee left Pullman, Washington to attend Berkeley for college. Good idea. Good call. Some relief in that, um, where she did her undergraduate and graduate studies in English. Lee's left Pullman, Washington to attend Berkeley, where she did her undergraduate and graduate studies in English. And um, that first day on campus, she said, was so profound because there were so many Asian people and nobody was making fun of them. Wow. You know, her parents came to visit like early on and they were like oh my god people are just like eating rice on the street and there was no shame because they would like eat their rice in private in their home and hide it because they didn't want to like feed into that stereotype or give people more things to like make fun of or wow more so it was out. like every aspect of their life even what they ate where they ate it where they ate it yeah crazy was dictated by um how they were treated so that she entered into Berkeley's PhD program after college where she studied Shakespeare for six years before moving to New York to become a playwright. She says he loved crazy people. He loved fools. He could basically be an experimental playwright in his day. Because Shakespeare? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And she only discovered that she wanted to be a playwright after studying Shakespeare for so long. Got it. She enjoyed it so much and she was talking to her therapist once and they were like, what do you want to be? And she thought, you know, maybe teach English, but then all of a sudden she just blurted out, I want to be a playwright. She had no, like, playwriting experience just from from studying studying Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. And studying English, obviously, all that time. But she didn't write very much before then. Well, yeah, aside from, like, I guess, like... Right, she... So um, she was never... She wasn't, like, a... She wasn't a theater nerd or anything like that. She wasn't, like, any performer. She was not... She's not a performer, is she? No. Gotcha. No. So then she calls up uh, Mac Wellman's playwriting program at Brooklyn College, and she wanted to get into their MFA playwriting program, and she just calls them up, and he says, like, she was so, you know, knew what she wanted that he didn't even read any of her stuff, and he just let her in because, like, she was just so sure of herself, hmm. and he, like, could feel that even over the phone. So she was led into the MFI playwriting program and she didn't care how hard it was going to be because everyone says, you know, entering into the theater is a very hard career. And so, but she did it. And New York Times calls her the most adventurous downtown playwright of her generation. And Time Out New York called her one of the best experimental playwrights in America. Yeah. So that's interesting that she's like, she's often categorized as like an experimental playwright because she isn't so used to the bounds of theater, right? Or not the bounds. She isn't so used to the... Um, etiquette. Etiquette of theater, I guess. The... What is the word? She's not used to like, okay, these are the rules of theater. And this is how you have to write a play. You have to have three acts. You have to have a complete character arc through those three acts. And you've got to set it in one place. And so her coming into it not having those like preconceived notions i guess she has been able to write so much more freely and really challenge her audience yes would you agree yes i totally agree i think i'm always jealous of people who come into theater like later in their life who've like 
I don't know, they played sports in high school or they were on the debate team or like they, you know, just wrote, uh, they were into poetry, but like it wasn't necessarily like theater. And then they come in with like this new, like great perspective and it almost seems more natural to them. They don't have to work as hard at it. Um, because it feels more effortless because they're coming in with, like, a fresh perspective. Yeah. Theater rewards you for being very well-rounded. Yes. Exactly. So I'm always jealous and I try to become more well-rounded because I started musical theater at the age of nine. So <laughs> it's, like, kind of fighting against what I've been, you know. Yeah. So you're used to. Studying my whole yeah, you're, life. You're used to, like, this is what we do and this is how we do it. Right. And there's these. Yeah. Right. But then somebody else coming in and be like, well, what if we did it a different way? And you're like. What? But anyways, back to Young Jing Lee. She is actually the artistic director of a nonprofit theater company dedicated to producing her work, Young Jing Lee Theater Company, <laughs> is what it's called. And she's written and directed 10 shows for the company and toured her work to over 30 cities around the world. Great. With the 2018 production of Straight White Men at the Hayes Theater, Lee became the first Asian American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. I'm going to repeat that. Wow. With the 2018 production of Straight White Men at the Hayes Theater, Lee became the first Asian American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. That's crazy. That's, that's only two years ago. Yeah. That's that, insane. That is. Cr- it's like a big woof, <laughs> I would say. Like, that's really rough. That Broadway and Broadway needs to produce more people of color's work and there needs to be more representation. That's just ridiculous. No, yeah. It's like, uh, especially lately, it's been like, yeah, Broadway's like a pretty exclusive club and you've got to, um, you got to be in the club to to get your work up there yeah, or to be an actor or a director or producer, whatever. That's insane. But she's also um, had other plays that have gone up besides straight white men in New York. Um, not necessarily all on Broadway, but um, there's the untitled feminist show. We're going to die. The shipment church songs of the dragons flying to heaven and her work has toured all around the world kind of like i said but some like big cities that i love dreaming of visiting are paris vienna brussels budapest sydney berlin london hamburg oslo athens and much more these are the cities that her plays have been in yes gotcha yeah so um majorly produced all around the world and she is currently under commission from the lincoln center theater and the oregon shakespeare festival and she's also an associate professor of theater and performing performance studies at stanford university um she has done she hasn't done much with her life i know not at all um she also uh did a film it's a short film, Here Come the Girls, and it had its world premiere at the Locarno International Film Festival, cool. the U.S. premiere at Sundance, and its New York premiere at BAM Cinema Fest. And she's actually also part of a band. A band? Yes. Um, <laughs> it's a band called Future Wife with a released album called We're Gonna Die. <laughs> um, Can you find it on Spotify? <laughs> honestly, we should look it up. We're going to look it up. Cool, yeah. So, yeah, if you go to Spotify and you want to listen to her music, is she does she sing or is she writing the music? I mean, she's part of the band. I forget what she does. She's with the band. She's with the band. She's got a cool t-shirt. She's got... She, she sells her merch. Yeah. After the concert. <laughs> she gets people on their feet, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. 
All right. <laughs> <laughs> Lee is the recipient of the Guggenheim. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay, fellowship. The Guggenheim. Guggenheim. Um, fellowship, she won two Obie Awards, a prize in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and a couple of other awards. And with each production, she begins to write. She starts by asking herself, what's the last play in the world that you would ever want to write? And then she starts writing it. Wow, that's so opposite of what most people start with. Most people start with, write what, what do you I, know. Write what you know. <laughs> Write yeah. what you know and write what you want to write about. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. That's not crazy. That's genius, I guess. It is. Yeah. Truly. So she, I mean, I admire her so much. I think she, you know, with her tenacity and she just decided what she wanted to do and she, you know, has been quite a success and she's had to learn like so much mm-hmm. kind of jumping into it and throwing herself in. And obviously like the playwriting world is not like an easy one, but she nope. found her voice, even growing up um, in more of a rougher circumstance. So, I don't know. I think she's pretty remarkable. No, yeah. she's She seems like she's done very well for herself. She has succeeded mostly through, it seems like, her own merits. Like, people just recognize her talent. Yeah. And I'm excited to see um, or read more of her plays. Because yeah. after reading Straight White Men, I'm like, oh, she's pretty good she's really and, this is a, and straight white men is a departure from what she normally writes right love so will do you want to lead us into the world this play was written in i would love to tell you about the world this play was written in so what year was this 2018 right that's when it was produced yes yeah that was when it was produced so we i mean like it's produced in trump's america and we've got and it's written for, I think it is written for, it's called Straight White Men, and I think it is written in large part for straight white men. Uh, there are some interviews where she was talking about how for so long, straight white man was like the default human, mm. is how she described it. And I would kind of agree, like, if you, like, everybody else was like a minority or... You're um, saying minority, weird. Minority? Minority? Minority. <laughs> I guess I would say I'm in the minority of how I speak. It's minority. Minority. Yeah. I feel like you could say it either way. I don't think you can. Minority? Minority. I mean, let us know, guys. Let us know. Let us know in the comments. <laughs> minority or minority? I'm pretty anyway. sure it's minority. Sorry. Okay. Anyway, um, where was I going now? Straight white men. Straight white men. Default. Has, yeah. It's always been the default human. But now, as minorities well like by 2050 the united states will be a minor my now you're really making me overthink this <laughs> a the united states will be a minority majority so over 50 percent of people in the united states will be people of color by 2050 if demographics wow. if dem, if demographics continue the way they That's are dope yeah it's crazy not crazy it's yeah it's it's well i think it is like crazy to think about just because like um you know, straight white men have had the power in America, like, since the beginnings. And yeah. so I think that'll be such an amazing shift if the demographics are reflected in government, God willing, right. that it will be, that's, like, pretty amazing. That's the key, yeah. If, if the If the population is truly represented in government, then, yeah, things will start to – will like, we're only at the beginning 
of this this big demographic shift that's going to be coming down the pipe in the next 30 years um so she was writing it for i think in large part straight white men to say like part of partly like that is an identity it's not a default human Mm. it is an identity it is something that you can it is something that you can be proud of but also at the same time she said that like now with this demographic shift being a straight white man isn't what it used to be because people are looking for employers are looking for people of color employers are look or um, colleges are looking (laughs) for people of all different backgrounds to attend their colleges so it's not all what it used to be obviously like it is a, a huge advantage being a straight white man I think still in America. Say that again for the people in the back. <laughs> Sarah, we don't have an audience. It's they're not here. It's what? a podcast. They're going to be listening to it at their leisure. Most people in their car. I or still don't people, understand what a podcast is. Or some people as they're just falling asleep. Or some people will just turn it on and then turn the volume off. Oh, I see. It's like a radio show. <laughs> Dear yeah. God. Anyway, so that is um, that. Th- that's what she's said about it. Um, there was an interview that I want to pull up here. Um, she did an interview with the New York Times that I thought was cool. Um, and she talked about when it was first staged at the Public Theater in 2014. So before it got to Broadway, of course, it you know, went through multiple rounds of revisions and all that kind of stuff um, at different theaters. Um, and so this is just a quote from that article. Uh, Straight White Men was staged in 2014 at the Public Theater to warm reviews. Charles Isherwood, writing in the Times, called it mournful and inquisitive. But Lee worries about its reception today. The play lands in a season when President Trump's travel ban has just been upheld. Immigrant families are being torn apart at the border. Reproductive rights are under attack and protection for LGBTQ people are being energetically rolled back. The most salient fact about identity politics these days seems less that some straight white men feel diminished by its existence than that the identity politics of some straight white men threaten the existence of so many others. So it did come in a time when, so like while the Obama administration was an administration of, there was so much like acceptance and there were so many um, people of color felt really empowered. There was like actual change in laws that protected them. Yeah. And then the Trump administration has kind of uh, rolled back some of those policies, um, made it very clear that, uh, the straight white man is is the default human, and we are we are gonna try to keep it that way. That's what it seems like. So yeah, so that I would say that is um yeah that's that's the America that it comes into, um and then of course it's probably taking on new meaning today, um with everything going on around black the Black Lives Matter movement and like George Floyd and all that kind of stuff. So I think this is a play that is so current. And so important for people to pick it up, get a copy for yourself, uh, find a production of it somewhere and get out there and, and, and read this play and understand what it's for. Because it is a really important piece. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. It's funny. It is not like overly preachy, I would say. What I was expecting when we came into it was that like it was going to be a bunch of straight white racists in an office talking to each other. <laughs> That's what I literally thought it was going to be. We're not and reading I was, Mammoth. And I was <laughs> <laughs> no, literally. And I, th- I, th- I thought it would be kind of like Mammoth, um, but just written by from the perspective of an Asian American. Mm-hmm. And 
I was like not looking forward to it. I was like, this is going to be just, it's just going to be like a, like a sad indictment on all straight white men in America. But it did, it's, I, I loved it. It was so good. And it was so, it was trying to define a certain kind of person while not attacking them and while not um, putting them down, I don't think. I think it's just trying to, it's trying to help a certain group of people, straight white men, understand who we really are. Um, but at the same time, it is... And the flaws and the privilege. At the same time, it's the flaw, pointing out flaws and privilege and um, making a real statement about uh, people of color and how we, people who are not a minority, can um, do something to to help them out. Yeah, so, like, Will and I chose um, this play because I think it's the closest that we can kind of speak to what is going on in America right now. Like, I wanted there to be us to do a piece on representation of minorities, of people of color, but Will and I obviously are both white both from the Midwest um, and we have had, you know, like there's a certain white privilege that we both possess. So it's hard speaking yeah. on we, those issues. Yeah, and like, we actually, up, we both grew up in like largely like white, white areas. areas yeah. yeah. White, uh, middle to middle, high, upper middle class, upper I guess, middle class sure, yeah. areas. So, um, but we still wanted to do a play that we could speak on this issue in support of the minorities in support of people of color. I don't know how white privilege like does give us an advantage and we need to acknowledge that and then educate ourselves on how to use that privilege to help speak for people of color, especially right now in America with black lives matter. So this is us trying to be a voice and use our voice to represent those people and become better artists and mm-hmm. better, like, more well-rounded people. So I would say, yeah, it's a great play to read, especially for straight white people to kind of understand the privilege you possess and also finding, like, your identity and where you stand in all of this. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, pick up a copy. Yes, pick up a copy and... Go buy it. How about that? Hey, support Young Jing Lee. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you if you are looking for resources or you're looking for conversations, um, there is a great Facebook group that's super, super active right now. It's called Artists Against Racism. And it is people in mostly the theater community, but there are like... It's represented by lots of different kinds of artists. And they're just having conversations. There was a conversation that I looked at um, about uh, high schools producing shows um, where there are people of color that are in like technically in the cast, but then that high school doesn't have people of color in their theater department or and so like how do you balance that? And I thought it was a really interesting conversation and something that's been on my mind um, in the past and in the future will be on my mind for sure. So it's just like it's, so if you are looking for something and you're looking to be a part of a community, especially if you're an artist of some sort, um, I would highly recommend that Facebook page that's that's um, super active right now. So Yeah. And then on Netflix, if you just want to watch the documentary 13th, I think it's really educational about the oppression black people have faced in America. That was, that was really, really good. Um, really, since, really bad, but good. Yes. Very well, very well made. Very, um, very factual and like very eye opening to see like what people go through. Yeah. The movie The Hate You Give. I it's think. also a book. And book is uh, pretty powerful. I, I learned, you know, that's kind of where 
I started kind of learning about it more. Yeah, and I also suggest When They See Us is a great um, TV show that you can kind of follow along, and it's pretty heartbreaking, but um, it's pretty powerful. So, Where do you find When They See Us? I think that's on Netflix, too. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Also, we're going to post on our story a bunch of uh, plays this week written by um, people of color throughout the week in our story. So keep an eye on that and maybe write it down in your little journal of plays to read. And yeah, so we need to support those people and lift them up because it's crazy that only in 2018 was there an Asian American woman playwright on Broadway. So we can help instigate that change by supporting right. and reading and um, educating ourselves. That's a, that's, a, that's a little fact that uh, is surprising and not surprising at the same time. Right. So do you want to get into it? Let's get into it. All right, Sarah. So the story of straight white men, if you had to sum it up in two sentences, what would you say it is? That's really hard. Well, Um, I mean, it was it's a fake competition. (laughs) We can can talk about it as much as we want. No, I think um, I don't think it's that easy because there's so many themes that. Well, without getting into the themes, what is it? Okay. uh, What what's the plot? Great. It is. A white, straight male family gathered together for Christmas. We've got some. We've got the characters. We've got Ed, who's the dad. He is a widower in his seventies. We've got, and then there's three brothers. Yes. Right, Matt, Jake, and Drew, and they are, I mean, at on the surface they're pretty interchangeable. They're all kind of in their forties. Matt's the oldest. Jake and Drew are somewhere younger than him. Yeah, still um, in their 40s, but have their lives a little put more together than mm-hmm, Matt. Mm-hmm. Matt um, and Ed live in the same house, so everybody's gathering at Matt and Ed's house, or I guess Ed's house. Matt's living there. Yeah. Um, everybody's gathering there, but it's it's interesting because it's ju- it's like nobody has their families with them. It's just the brothers and the dad, and they're celebrating right. Christmas together. I think one of them is a divorcee, and then one has a family of his own yeah. that he just was like, I'm going to go chill with my brothers for Christmas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever. You do you, man. Yeah. I mean, the play starts with, um, there's really loud R&B music yeah, as let's... the audience walks in um, and as the pre-show. And then... Um, so it's a very, like, the, the playwright is very clear about, like, what she wants the audience to experience the moment they step in the theater and I think that is that's like part of her experimental um, theater side yeah. coming out. I I love I love and hate plays like that where it's like I love it's like, plays it's like, like ugh, that. Like ugh, it's gonna be an experimental piece. Like oh man, theater. Like, oh, I'm gonna learn something. Talk. I'm gonna ugh. grow. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> I don't know. No, I I like it because um, I truly try to respect the playwright. Like as many people who have worked with me know, I'm like a psycho about. Um, making sure we're adhering to, like, the playwright's words, their stage directions, um, not taking, like, too many liberties because I feel like I want to respect the story that they have written and they have produced and the world they've created um, rather than, like, inserting myself on top of it. So I love that she um, she does provide, like, a lot of freedom, but also she's creating, like, this world that you can, like, jump into and have fun with and um like she knows what she wants and it can still be you know really loud r&b music and then lead into a starkly like realistic um play yeah yeah so yeah so so they cut so the audience comes in there is 
rap music, just any kind of rap music, but it's got to be a woman rapping. And it's really loud. Singing. It's really loud, like uncomfortably loud. Yeah. And um, if anyone complains, there's two people in charge walking around. And they're like in character, basically. Yes. And she requests that they be um, representational of like the minorities. So it'd be someone who's um, non-binary or someone who's transgender or uh, the very least a person of color. Right. Um, just whatever. Um, I think they both have to be women, right? Maybe not. I don't, I don't think so. Okay. But um, yeah, so they are going around and if anyone complains, then they're like, I'm so sorry about that. I'll see what I can do. But then just move on and nothing changes. Right. So like be empathetic to the cause, but like it's not going to change. It's nothing's going to change. <laughs> and then, um, so that's like the pre-show basically. Yes. Um, so there's a little bit of interactive stuff. Right. And then the two people in charge go yeah. on stage and start kind of they just introduce the show and they introduce who they are yep and it and it's like it's like kind of scripted in the script but at the same because but she just based it off of what they said on the broadway right they kind of made that up made it personal they made it personal who they are yeah yeah Yeah, they introduce the show and then they set the the men up as like action figures yeah so so there's a line that i really liked in the intro Mm mm-hmm and remember, like, there's all this, like, super loud music, very uncomfortable, and they're not going to do anything if you complain. And what, it, what, what the line is, it says, Before we begin the show, we'd like to acknowledge that our pre-show music may have made some of you uncomfortable. And normally, when you pay money, especially Broadway money, you can expect to feel comfortable. Kate and I are well aware that it can be upsetting when people create an environment that doesn't take your needs into account. I just, I thought that was really, really, it's, like, funny. But yeah. it's also like, like, yeah, that's poignant. what happened. Yeah, it's very poignant. Yeah, people yeah. who, people of color, maybe or people who are, who are, yeah, their their needs aren't taken into account. That the, in some ways, in a lot of ways, sometimes the system is stacked against you. Right, and like telling you what your needs are, and not listening to what you need or how you want to be represented or representing only an idea of you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. That's yeah. a good point. I did. Yeah, I love that line. So then after that intro, then they set the men up as kind of action figures and then the play begins. Right. I thought that was really interesting. What do you think is the idea behind that? That like the people, the people in charge, they bring the actors on and the actors are kind of like in like sleep mode, I guess, you know, yeah. like puppets basically. And they like set them up in the spots that they're going to start. What do you like? What's the. What's the point of that? Okay, so I think that um, it kind of juxtaposed, like, the points she presents, whereas, like, you know, as a woman, I <laughs> sometimes, like, speak of straight white men all in, like, a general term. Yeah, I'm like, just, oh, like, men are gross. Ah, uh, the patriarchy. Yeah, and the I'm patriarchy, like, it like, sucks. I guess, like... I mean, it does. But, um, no, but I feel like that... Is kind of represented in the action figures in being posed of like how we view like um, or like speaking for me how sometimes I might view straight white men and then but then young Jean Lee brings up another point throughout this play where um, there is an expectation straight white men have on themselves and have on each other of how they deal with emotions how their privilege affects them 
and um, who they're supposed to be like as people. And so you see them being set up like in a certain stoic way. And then the play presents like those type of themes. So I think uh, they really like comment on each other of and conflict with each other and in like an interesting way, if that makes sense. The characters are first introduced as almost robotic. Yeah. But then as the play goes on, you see that these people are in fact that they are people yeah. with problems and with anxieties and with deficiencies not meeting expectations yeah yep yeah so i don't know i think it highlights that and um i don't know it makes you think more rather than if they were just to walk out yeah and i guess the imagery of that too is just is just that you've got a person of color directing a white man and that is poignant as well it's just it's just like oh yeah this is maybe uh what white men have been doing to people of color for a really long time and now right. it's reversed on stage so that's oh that's it. interesting yeah. i like that yeah. and i also i want to say that also they're stagehands and they're all supposed to be women right if possible yeah yeah, yeah. if possible so like, like so people, changing the set setting right. up the scenes they're all serving the men uh, the women are yeah gotcha yeah so I, I don't know. She really thinks about every little detail, everything the audience is going to see, yeah. hear, you don't experience. Often, yeah, you don't often see like a playwright dictating like, okay, and these are the Stay people. Chance. Yeah, these are the people you have to have on your staff. Yeah. Like, uh. <laughs> but I think, you know, it just speaks even more to the theme and um, gives you like some something to think about and take home and marinate. <laughs> so the main action of the play like it's christmas eve and christmas day i think it takes place over maybe three days yeah and the main action of the play is all in this living room and the plot is centered around matt Mm -hmm. who is the oldest and he is a he's a failure in a lot of ways yeah he has a phd yes um went to harvard went to harvard like super smart guy but after that he's in his 40s now and he really hasn't he really hasn't lived up to that, and so he's living back with his dad. He is crippled by student student loans. I, he's not married, nor no. ever was. I don't think. I no. Don't, I don't. Yeah, uh, and he is basically a a temp. Sorry. Yeah. He's a temp, a temp at a social agency that helps out people, the community, the community, people who are in trouble, whatever. And that was also like always viewed as, um, and acted upon like he was always trying to help. Like, right. minority groups, like, he have was, a voice. Like, he was, like, he was a revolutionary. Labeled, yeah, he was the activist brother. Yeah. Know? Like, he was always, he, he started, like, I don't know, like, a special activist club at, in at high school. At his high school, yeah. Yeah. So, they think he's such, like, the good one. Like, he is almost, like, a perfect mm-hmm. soul. Like, he wants to, uh, like, the perfect white man using his voice to help others. And um, they don't want to do that because they're too selfish, but... They admire and respect him for that, and they don't understand why he's living at home with his dad when he has so much potential. And he, they truly believe, like in their souls, that he could change the world, which I think there is something like beautiful in that. In because like Jake, I think like goes is like screaming of how much he believes like in that, right? Um, at different points in the play and trying to defend him and like. You have so much going for you and you could like make such a difference and yet you're just doing like attempt jobs work. Right. And like s- anybody could make copies. Right. But you've got a PhD. Yeah. 
and like the knowledge to like truly help right yeah and then what is the and then drew is of the opposite he says he's depressed that he well he's depressed and that he's doing this to himself on purpose because he is drew says that he's depressed and that he um he just needs like a personality shift he needs to go to therapy and then he'll just um be all better and then he can kind of get back on his feet and do what he's meant to do so they're both going at it like in opposite ways whereas jake is like nothing's wrong with him he's just what you were gonna say oh that he's doing it to himself he he is punishing himself because of his privilege yeah so he is purposefully not um, using his phd because he just feels like he's he, he only got it because he's a straight white man right basically right um and they're um so speak a little bit of a background to this family they their mother who i guess passed away right yeah she's yeah. been she's been gone for several years yeah she um she really wanted to educate them on their white privilege for like at a very young age yeah they and, are hyper aware of their privilege yeah as straight white men like they had a game <laughs> styled off of monopoly called privilege and um so there was like certain points if you pass go and you're white which all of them were then they had to like go to jail or right. something yeah, yeah it was just like it was like a, a yeah. like a reverse um kind of like if you were a minority then you had more privilege than like um if right. you were white and so it kind of yeah made them more aware of like what they had in society yeah. i think it's a great cool concept but um it does like they kind of keep going back to it and it's um being so aware of their white privilege and there's like that guilt ridden with it and i think it really did affect um it affected matt for sure yeah and it has at least um been in the subconscious of the other two although to a lesser extent yeah and ed isn't um he's isn't as in yeah ed is the dad and he's in his 70s and he's not really concerned like with white privilege there's some moments throughout the play where he'll say something slightly offensive and they're like dad no yeah, like, why would you yeah. say that yeah but yeah. yeah i was and like i said earlier like i was really glad that like it d- didn't just turn out that these guys were all racists like they were i don't know it seemed like they were largely normal people but they were but they are they talk about their privilege a lot they like openly admit like um jake works in a fancy work office and he is like a fancy work office yeah what's, what's that like I don't know. There's a lot of windows. They have an espresso machine. Um, they all have to wear suits to work. They all look the same. White Sounds men. like paradise. Yikes. He's joking. Um, <laughs> but he uh, he works in a in a nicer office. And he says that he does have, like, people of color, minorities, or women that he does want to, like, move up. But um, because the way the system is set up, he only moves up he only, white men. Yeah, he does say that towards the end. So that was really bad. But yeah, because but he only he's doing that because like he feels like he feels like the people above him wouldn't approve them or something. Right. And so yeah, so he's like definitely part of the problem. Yeah, he's definitely even though he preaches, he's preaching this. Like, yep, you know, I'm only here because I'm white or whatever. And he's like, you know, I, I'm trying not to take advantage of my privilege. Um, yeah. But he doesn't um, actually try to make a difference. So, yeah. So they 
even though they're aware of their privilege, you see their downfalls and you see their complacency in which they um, they don't try to enact change or make a difference, except for Matt. But then Matt is viewed as less than, as um, depressed, as needs help. Uh, he couldn't well, possibly be happy. Right. He couldn't possibly be happy. In this and state he, of life. And what kind of triggers this is that Matt um, just, like, breaks down at the dinner table. Like, he, like, he like just starts crying. Yeah. What so they're you... all eating Chinese food on the couch. Yeah. Which I love. <laughs> Great <laughs> The image. visual. Yeah. They all, like, shove in and sit in their spots that they've had since they were, like, little boys. Mm-hmm. Um. And they're eating Chinese food, and Matt's not really partaking in the converse, in the dinner conversation, and then he just starts crying. Right. Just right there. Just right there. And they try to be like, hey, what's wrong? And he, like, won't say anything. He never really opens up. Yeah. He's very reserved, very... Yeah. Um, private about private it. Private about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so that's the end of, like, Act 1. You don't really know what's going on um, with him. Right. What did you think about the interactions between the brothers? I thought they were sweet and too aggressive for oh, me. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, I liked how, I don't know, I'm a sentimental family person. So, any memory, any inside joke, like, I love to cling on to and, like, yeah, they're always joking about, like, stuff that happened years yeah, and years ago. exactly. It so, gave you, like, a very good – it gave you a very good sense that, like, these brothers really love each other and they're, like – and they've, like, been, like, buddies for right. a long time. Right. And so um, I did appreciate that fact. And I know families, like, we've kind of talked about how you um, – you're more vicious or you're, you're a little more hurtful with your words, but – Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of love there still. And so just a few times when they're like beating up on each other or like name calling constantly and the other person doesn't seem like okay with it, then I'd be like, yeah, you're kind of being a little bit of a jerk right then. Like, um, didn't they call someone cry baby or like, yeah, through, yeah, they call him a mean nickname for like the whole show because it was like a, a nickname from his from his uh childhood yeah or where he like literally ate poop or something yeah i guess the beating up each other i'd have to like see it on stage but when you're reading it and they like literally beat up each other in their 40s like yeah they're five or six different points in the play and you're like whoa but it's all like yeah they are acting like very much like 12 year old elementary Yeah. yeah um even though they're 40 year old men and so like they're i don't know it's weird it's but it was so realistic with how like guys treat each other and how um yeah you they... could probably speak to this more than like i could yeah yeah i had l- let me tell you i had a blast reading it and imagining <laughs> like one i was putting myself in the play and i was like i would love to be in this play because it just it's it's what we talk about like between guys like that brotherhood that um that that friendship that you can only get from another guy where it is like very physical it's um very uh i mean yeah we, we, like harassing each other and like making fun of each other uh but then at the same time you know that these guys like really really care about you and they'll do anything for you 
Um, and so it is like a, a really beautiful, it was a really beautiful thing to read. And I just had, it was so fun. And I was just like, I've been in those situations um, where it's just like, you're surrounded by a bunch of dudes. It's just, it's just a ton of fun because everybody's just like having a good time. And like, it was very um, well-written and very um, realistic to like how guys like relate to each other, I think. Yeah. And like Young Jean Lee, she said, like she had no idea how to write, like she had been around like straight white men, you know, for most of her life, but... But she said, she was like, I never know how men talk to each other when there's no women around. Yeah. Because I'm a woman, and so how would I know? Yeah, and so she had to, like, interview lots of men and, like, try to watch them, like, interact. Yeah, she was, like, almost, like, doing, like, uh, psychological studies on them. Right. And, like, interviewing them for a a bunch of time and, like, trying to observe, like, observe their behavior in the wild. Right. Kind of. (laughs) And it is, I mean, like, it is a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, um, Because there's a lot of, like, really funny moments here and they, they, like, do these, they, like, there's, like, some weird songs they sing that are from their high school. Some funny accents, like, I love the Western part where they were like i want pa and like we're yeah 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 Yeah, Um, there's all sorts of inside jokes (laughs) that you just feel like oh yeah like i'm a part of this family because like i get to see like what how they really relate to each other it was cool yeah so i get that i yeah i think that led to but like in most families where it kind of goes too far sometimes and then feelings get hurt it definitely felt like that too yeah so which is very realistic because that happens in my family (laughs) And yeah, the brothers were these complicated, flawed humans. So you felt like, oh, I love this and it's sweet. But also it's like, oh, does one of you view yourself as better than the other? Like I had kind of those thoughts. Um, Mm, Interesting. Even though Matt's the oldest, it felt like, you know, Jake and Drew were at odds on how to deal with them where it felt like, oh, it's my way or, you know, like I know best, like and I know it's best for him. And it kind of had this, like, uppity attitude. They're trying to be a parent to him rather than brothers. Right. They're not really listening to him. They don't... Matt almost doesn't get a chance to speak. He does. He keeps saying, like, I don't really want to talk about it. And, like, obviously, like, he needs to talk about it. He needs to express... That, w- that was really maddening for me. That he, like, hardly expresses... Oh, that's maddening for you? Matt just doesn't express what he's feeling. He broke down at the dinner table. And that obviously means... That he's feeling something, but he won't, like, talk about it. Right. He won't just tell them, like, yeah, this is why I started crying. Because even if you don't know for sure, you maybe have some idea, like, right. why you just suddenly start crying. Yeah. I mean, he does later. Does he? I can't even remember. Yeah. What, is, what does he say? Well, it was something along the lines of, like, everything felt so different. Oh, okay. But they were doing, like, a similar tradition. But I don't know whether it's, like... The mom gone, the state of his life, yeah. uh, where they're at, um, how they're acting, even though they're doing like similar traditions and similar inside jokes and similar things, it felt different to him, like the atmosphere of it. Yeah, that answer, like, I guess, like, didn't really satisfy me. I'm like, there's got to be something else. I don't know. I totally get that. I, t- I mean, like, I remember. Even in this past year, there's been moments for me where in my family it's felt 
so different and even though the house feels the same and you know everyone is still alive we're all together Mm. um the dynamic has shifted and it it does it makes you sad for what it was and like your childhood and your past and because those like were so great in his mind and then now maybe he's seeing his life now and it's not what he expected even though it's doing the same thing gotcha it makes you more aware Young Jin Lee, she even says that, like, she gives the least amount of voice to Matt when he's the protagonist, kind of, in all of this. Yeah, you're definitely rooting for Matt throughout the whole play. Right. Because you want him to, you feel for him, and you want him to be happy, but he's not. Well, but he is. I don't think he is. You don't think so? He's, he's... But he keeps saying that he is. and I, But I think that's something that Young Jin Lee is saying, that, like men might have this, like, expectation on themselves or on each other, like, unfairly, Mm -hmm. where he's working with an activist organization. He's doing what he, yeah, but, yeah, I guess I... Yes, he's doing temp work, but, like, he does keep saying, like, I am happy, and, like, that's not good enough for his brothers, and his brothers are like, yeah, but you're not living up to, like, your white male potential of what our role in society is, where we kind of, like, run the... I'm definitely on the side of Jake. I'm on the side of Matt. Really? I'm on the side of Matt because I think maybe it was, like, too much stress and, like, that caused a lot of unhappiness, like, earlier in his life when things were going, like, well (laughs) in bunny ears, (laughs) quotes. Um, So do you think that we owe a debt to society? Like, this is a big question. But, like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, well, to, I mean, to quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. If you've got the knowledge and if you've got the know-how and if you've got the smarts and all of that, then shouldn't you use that to better society? I think he is kind of wasting some potential. And now I don't, I've never met the guy. <laughs> yeah, but like... He's making copies at a... Like, anybody can... He's kind of, in a way, he's kind of, like, taking a job from, I don't know, like, a teenager who needs to... Like, their first job. I don't think he's going to be at this temp job forever. No. it's temporary, right? It is. So, I think Matt is finding himself and finding what makes him happy where, yes, he went to Harvard and, yes, he has his PhD, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have, like the highest role ever i think he could maybe even work i think working in that small organization back in his hometown he is finding happiness in that and that's what i'm and that and yeah exactly and i think that's what he maybe he's like seeing seeing him move up in that organization would be like really great and i think that's hopefully what he does I don't see that as part of his plan, but maybe it is. Well, I mean, like, let's say that I worked at a gas station and that made me happy. Yeah. Like, that's, like, that's okay. Even though I've got a teaching degree. Like, no offense. Shouldn't I, shouldn't I... You are a teacher who makes lower amount of money than, like, a bunch of other jobs that you could have gone into. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it makes you happy. Sure. Am I frustrated with you that you're not, like, an accountant or a businessman? No. Yeah. Because teaching makes you happy. Right. So, but you as a white man, you could have studied accounting, you could have studied business, you could have studied government, you could have studied, you know, like all of that. Sure. 
and like even if it didn't make you happy but you're like I could easily get this but you chose what you're passionate about and what you love Mm -hmm. even though you make less money and you are really intelligent but what I'm saying is he's making copies he's not a teacher yes but it's what makes him happy okay you know and I think that's beautiful and like there shouldn't be like I think that's what young Jean Lee's saying where you know even straight white men can find happiness in those you know lower in quotes like jobs or in like other um things than what people had envisioned for them okay and what they think their role in society should be because they have x y and z cool well if i ever get if i I ever get superpowers i'm not going to go to you for advice right okay (laughs) (laughs) where's uncle ben when you need him no, but I don't know. And I think there's also something to speak to on um, how they deal with emotions. Yes, let's talk about their emotions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Drew might be the healthiest. Why? Because he goes to therapy. It all comes back. All no, comes back. Um, this should be like a ther- – we should get – any if any therapists are out there, we can advertise for you. Great. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think – so we'll start with Ed. Ed is the father. He doesn't want to talk about it until his hand is forced by his sons. Yes. He says everything's fine until Jake keeps pushing him. Yep. So he's right? he's very he's the oldest, obviously, and so no. he is Ed. Oh, you just mean yeah. in general? I thought you meant like the oldest. Yeah, son. he's from. He, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Ed is from a different generation. Right. And he um, is very much uh, about like ah, we don't need to share our feelings. Like, don't worry about it. But he's also like a like. At the same time, he's, like, a really good dad, it seems like. Oh, yeah. He's, like, so sweet to them and just wants the best. And he takes, like, a lot of crap from them, too. Yeah, like, he does. Like, at one point, Jake, like, sorry, Dad, I opened the gift I gave you because I wanted to use it, and then I broke it. Yeah, I mean, like, And then Ed's, it. like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> he just, like, lets they've it got slide. A really, they've got a really funny father-son relationship. Yeah. Um. So, Ed, yeah, until his hand is forced, he doesn't. He's like, uh, it's not that big of a deal. Right. And then Matt, like we've kind of already said, doesn't share his feelings. Right. He pre- he almost pretends like they don't exist. Right. He's, He's like, like, stop pushing. Like, it's it not... wasn't a big deal. Like, I just, yeah. It's like, and then, like, and then Drew keeps saying, like, it kind of is a big deal that you just started crying out of nowhere. Right. Like, that's the sign. Yeah. And then maybe that's where Drew's fault lies, where, and this coming from a girl who cries a lot, but... It makes me so frustrated when people view crying as, like, a sign of weakness or a sign of clear unhappiness or... Okay. Um, I guess that, yeah. Like, it has such, like, a negative connotation to it. Like, I cried so much in my whole life. Yeah. And... Crying is not the end of the world. No. It's, like, a release for me. Like, I feel so much and, like, crying just helps. And it helps, like my mental state it helps my emotional state like it helps me get over things right and so i like it it does frustrate me that drew and everyone else is like something is wrong with you because you started crying out of nowhere well i guess here's the difference is that you cry and you but you're usually crying like about something like you usually can't articulate like yeah this is why i'm sad or this is why i'm stressed because yeah. you know 
Matt isn't able to articulate that until they really, really push him. Well, I think, I mean, that's where, like, Matt's fault lies. Yes. But I don't think the act of crying warrants everyone's psycho behavior about that crying. Absolutely not. Yeah. Because they're not comfortable with emotions, like, as, um, and talking about them openly. Like, it's a very, the conversation feels more heightened and it but, gets very aggressive when talking about emotions because they don't really know how to. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody starts crying, but they won't tell you why? It's, yeah. Yeah. It's like super. With my fr- siblings. It's like super frustrating. Yeah. It's like, but like, I, I get where, why they're frustrated. No, it is. It is frustrating. I just think, you know, they go to extremes like he's depressed. He's unhappy with his life. They everything's do. going wrong. And it's just like, he it can, just. Yeah. It can be simpler than that. Right. crying is a normal thing that's all i'm saying so people out there feel free to cry do it i support you i'll be here for you i have cried in the hallway at school i have cried by my locker i have cried in the bathroom i have cried in the classroom like i've been there i support you um that's all i have to say no and then uh jake is he is like so aggressive about emotions and doesn't um, and like kind of we were saying that condemns them almost and it must lead to a greater issue or like everything. And yeah, so none of them are really um, comfortable or calm and open while talking about them. The closest is like Drew. So Drew has been to therapy before. Yeah. 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 Is he the divorcee? Jake's divorced. Jake's divorced. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Drew has a family. Drew, yeah. Drew's married and has a family. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah he does. Yeah, so he, but he was kind of, he even opens up, like, towards the end, there is a little bit more real uh, conversation between Drew and Matt, where um, Drew has this monologue where he's basically like, dude, remember when, um, basically, when I was suicidal and depressed and I could barely get out of bed, I remember you being on the phone with me and talking to me for, like, two hours until I felt like strength to like get dressed and then like I started going to therapy and like I do it's changed and helped me feel better obviously they're there for each other um even if like the emotional or talking about that isn't as like uh you know clear but Matt was like sorry I'm not gonna do that and I'm still gonna live here like I'm not gonna make any life changes and Drew's like I can't watch you do this to yourself um like I won't be around to like watch you do it and Matt's like okay and he was like and I thought this was like a crazy piece which maybe we could talk about when Drew was like you living this life is more important than our relationship yeah because he gives because Drew gives him an ultimatum like either you fix this fix your life get some help or i will stop like talking to you yeah and then he does and he walks away and that's the end of the play right close close it was very close yeah very close um but um so yeah drew walks out and matt chooses like the state of his life and what makes him that's why i think it does like make him happy like i feel like it's like it makes him happy or he is super super depressed i really want to see a sequel to this play because you don't it's very unclear like how it ends like yeah. it's like you, you and i want to see like i want to catch up with these characters five years later and see where they're at you love catching up five i years love years later. <laughs> those, i love those kind of stories that take big five-year gaps oh yeah 
What was that one movie series, Ethan Hawke's... Uh... Oh, the Before Trilogy? <laughs> oh, so good. Will loves that. Yeah, no, the play ends with actually Ed kicking Matt out of the, the oh, house. Oh, yeah, that's right. Everyone disapproves of how Matt is living his life, so much so they're ending relationships with him they're kicking him out of the house because he's not living up to what they thought he would be all because he started crying at the dinner table Uh, if that happened to me i'd be out on the streets by five and i'm just like how can you cry at the dinner table when you're eating delicious crab rangoon and egg rolls you know might not sit right (laughs) it could have just been a stomach issue (laughs) yeah honestly been there um (laughs) I I did like it. I would love to see it. Oh yeah, highly recommend it. I would love to. I would love to see this. I would love to be in it. I was trying to think like, ooh, who would I be? I'd be Drew. I like Drew the best. I feel like your my, energy my, is more my Jake. My energy is more Jake, but I would want to play Drew. Yeah. Because Jake seems like a real jerk, and also I don't think I like my look. I don't think I would pull off like a like a lawyer type. But Jake's the only one who didn't cut ties with him, right? Not cut ties, but like gave him a. Yeah, I mean, Jake doesn't give him, like, an ultimatum or kick him out, but he does get really mad at him and then storms out of the house because he's like, I have been trying to stick up for you or finding why you're choosing this way of life for, like, two days and, like, yelling on your behalf about your beliefs, like, almost like being your voice for these people and, like, assuming how – he's, like, assuming how Matt is feeling, which doesn't sit right with me, but – he does have, I thought, an interesting point that Drew made to Jake to try to get him, like, on his side about, is when Drew brought up, like, how would you feel if your kids were doing this to themselves or were taking this kind of state of life, like, at this age? Because Jake is, like, defending what Matt is doing this whole time right. until Drew is like, well, what if your kids did it? Yeah. And then Jake, like, switches where he'd be like, yeah, I'd be really disappointed and mad at them of how, like, much I supported them over the years. And then this is what is happening. So I thought that was, like, an interesting argument and an interesting shift that Young Jin Lee puts in where Jake, you see Jake being so aggressive the whole time and then the mention of his kids, like, changes his mind. And he's like, no, I agree with Drew. I agree with Dad you need help or you need to get your life together. And then um, he walks, he does walk out. I have one more little thing. How did you feel about the, um, when they did like the anti-KKK like protest uh, at this school, like that ah. memory? <laughs> Clear, okay, explain, re-explain it. Was that the Oklahoma? Yeah, the Oklahoma, they didn't cast, um, any people of color in the show and so matt was really upset about it and so he protested the musical by dressing as like a kkk member and um wrote a song he like changed the lyrics to uh, to oklahoma Oklahoma, and they had like oh kkk yeah it was pretty like the lyrics were actually really really good yeah (laughs) I was like, whoa. So if that gives you any indication of how Matt is. Yeah, um, yeah I think part of it partly is like Matt is just like he, he's just seen such a shift. He's been kind yeah. of beaten down from when he was a high schooler. Right. He yeah. was like so brave and like 
forming all these different clubs that they bring up and like doing movements like that in his he, high school. And he was good at it. He was, yeah. people rallied around him. Yeah. Like his brothers were like, we did that. You got us to do that. And yeah. like, we're like douchey white boys. Sure. And he, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So maybe there could be something said to that too. That like he had like lead, like really good leadership qualities. Yeah. And yeah. And it, yeah. So I kind of, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I also think there's merit in, um, finding a job that makes you happy and like even if people don't agree with you but like can can you've worked in an office before can making copies really make you happy or are you just lazy yeah but it's not just making you're making copies like he's doing it for a cause like for that activist organization it's not like oh i'm just gonna you know do inventory it's like maybe copying flyers for like a yeah, pro rally. It's like, or... it's like if it's like if I don't know. It's like if Spider Man like instead of using his <laughs> powers, <laughs> instead of using instead of using his powers to like fight crime and stuff like that, he was just like uh, like I don't know. He like launched a very successful moving company because he was Spider Man. Makes you happy, Spider Man. Uncle Ben would just he would he would roll it rolling in his grave, poor Ben. All Toby Maguire, you know, Andrew Garfield. My know. favorite. Who's my favorite? Who's your favorite Spider Man? Andrew Garfield? No. Oh, uh, what's his name? The new one. Oh my gosh. Am I blanking? Oh, it's uh it's uh Tom. Hello. <laughs> my name's Tom Holland. My, Tom Holland. Oh, I love being Spider Man. I had a sweet dream. This is why Tom Holland's my favorite. I had a sweet dream. That like Will died. That wasn't the sweet part. That was sad. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> that was sad. But somehow I was in movies and like Tom Holland was like my celebrity friend and he was there for me. Your favorite Spider Man is based off a dream? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's also I like his young energy. I think also, Andrew Garfield I, I think is he, a little too I angsty. think he is. I have uh, the the Andrew Garfield movies are garbage. I think Tobey Maguire his movies are like the best probably spider-man 2 is one of the best superhero movies of all time and i will stand by that i just don't love toby Maguire. no i don't love him either i haven't i haven't liked him in anything else i've seen him in i haven't liked him and ever, i don't even, even really i don't even really like him as spider-man but i think those movies are the best anyway i, don't I think that i think that uh the the new tom holland ones there's a lot of wasted opportunity there but hey this isn't a spider-man <laughs> podcast or is it we, we do, just tricked you. We could do. You want to do Spider Man Into the Dark? Or no, Turn Off the Dark? That no. Broadway Spider Man show? This is not a musical podcast. This is not a musical podcast. We hate musicals. Okay. We don't hate musicals in this house. We just. Sometimes. We have complicated we hate, feelings. Sarah has complicated feelings. Here's my here's my feelings about musicals. I don't like bad ones, and I do like good ones. That's that's how I feel wow, about musicals. Wow, what a hot take, Will. I don't know. You want to cast the freaking play? Want to cast the freaking play? All right, let's do it. Right. Um, who do you want to start with? Well, oh, let's you want to start... do person in charge one and person in charge yeah. two. Yeah. So you, you're supposed to cast, like we said at the beginning, uh, people of color, um, preferably women, but could be really kind of like whoever's in the community who can do it. Um, but non-binary, you know, under, transgender. Un, yeah, under no circumstances should these people be straight white men. Right. My two people in charge are Laverne Cox who is on Orange is the New Black. Okay. And she's, like, pretty, like, well-known um, transgendered Oh, okay. Great. Women. Person of Charge 2 is my non-binary favorite person. Who? 
Jonathan? Ooh, from Queer Eye. Van Ness. Yes, Jonathan's the best. The energy coming from Jonathan is insatiable and it is um wouldn't that be incredible before a show oh it'd be awesome yeah uh so those are your people in charge um i've got i've uh, um i've got rupaul which is like american drag queen but or self-described queen of drag Ooh, i like that self-described anyway um and then i've got i'm gonna go with uh i'm gonna go with hannah gadsby who um is that She's an Australian comedian who had that special on com- on Netflix uh, called Nanette. She's like, yes, oh my gosh, she's, she's so funny. I think funny. she's super funny yeah. and like very. Um, I don't know. I think she'd be great. Yeah, she has such like a dry humor, and that'd be funny also to like if someone had an issue, is she would just be like very dry about it. Oh yeah, very very yeah, much so. But very much really so. funny. Um, yeah. So who do we choose? I forget who your people were. Oh, Jonathan. Let's do okay, Jonathan we can't, we can't and do Jonathan and can we do Jonathan and and Hannah Gatsby? Mm. No, probably not. Who was your Laverne other, Cox? I would do Laverne and Hannah. Great. You want to do that? I like that. All right, great. Perfect. All right, so we each have a little one to one. Yeah. Okay. Let's cast Ed. Ed, he's the father, 70s. Okay, I've got to do a little I've got to do a little disclaimer about my cast. My entire cast I is all about 10 years too old. But I just was really attached to all these people and I was just like, you know what? They're going to look they'll look a little younger on stage, you know. Incredible. Especially the especially <laughs> the brothers. The dad, I mean like whatever. He's 80 instead of 70. Yeah, mine's like 79. Okay, great. But yeah, you wouldn't really be able to tell. Yeah. All right, so who you got? mine is Harvey Keitel. Okay. You're Grand have Budapest to tell me Hotel, who... Reservoir Dogs. You'd recognize him if oh, you saw him. Oh, okay. And he, correct me if I'm wrong, but is he the FBI agent in National Treasure? You are correct. That is so funny because guess who I picked as my. Oh, no. I picked. Uh, as my Ed, I picked John Voigt, who's the dad in National Treasure. <laughs> We're gonna have an all National Treasure cast, guys. No. That'd actually be a oh my gosh, crazy. I can't believe you did that. That's so funny. That's so funny. I think mine wins. I love John Voigt. Ah, John Voigt is so he's got such a kind face. Yeah. But so does your guy. Yeah. I think your guy. What is his name? Max Keller. Harvey Keitel. <laughs> Harvey Keitel, not Max Keller. But I don't know. I, I sense like uh, so I think Ed has a um kind, but also like nothing matters. I ended up in this really nice life by magic because sure. white privilege doesn't exist. You know, sure. like that kind of energy. Yeah. So and I think Harvey possesses that more. Great. Yeah. Do you disagree? I love John Voight, but it's not. We'll I'm not saying it, I don't like look, John. Look, maybe Boyd. Harvey Keitel needs a he needs a break. Right. You know, John Voight's already pretty famous, so. Yeah. Come on. All right. We'll give it to him. Give it to him. All right. Um. Yeah. So, like I said, my brothers are all about. They're all in their early fifties instead of forties. Well, I did forties because I listened to so the playwright. So do I get disqualified? No. We'll I'm just see. saying we'll through see. the magic of theater, and also, this is definitely for a play. I don't think this could be a movie. No. No. It would be. It would not come off the way you want it to come off. It's right. definitely a play. Definitely live. Yes. Energy. All right. Here we got as your mat. Oh, my mat is Joaquin Phoenix. No way. 
sad boy. All right. All right. Sad he boy. He's a sad boy. He's just such an actor. Okay. He puts like so. Why are you trashing Joaquin? Who's your Matt? Paul Rudd. <laughs> are you kidding? Okay. Give me one time Paul Rudd was an extraordinary actor, and I'll give you ten dollars. Give um, me one time. Have you ever seen This Is Forty? Woof. What? This is forty. Is that a comedy? Yeah. Straight white men is. A, I mean, it's a comedy drama. It's a. William, that's a that's a rom com. It kind of, but it's got like it's not like it's not uh, it's not I don't know it's not like uh, but your typical rom com. It is. There's Here's some the thing. Drama I think it would it. stand out and it's if ve- it's Paul about Red very... was like quiet on stage. Like it would stand out almost too much. I don't know. He's got a very sad face. I think that's just a personal opinion. He's Joaquin got... Phoenix has a sad face. Guess you just texted me. Who? Joe Biden. <laughs> anyway. Um, um, okay. Here's what I'm saying about Joaquin Phoenix. He is such a big actor. He is – I don't think he's very naturalistic. You can see – I see him acting. Like when he played the Joker, I'm like, yep, he's definitely like – the odd uh, character. Sorry that he when embraced. I, when he, the yeah, but like person. I mean, like, and you've got to do that with the Joker. Would Paul Rudd be good for the Joker? No, he would be a terrible Joker. Paul Rudd is such an actor and such like, hey, I'm Paul Rudd. Whoa, this is wacky. Can you believe this is happening to me? Am I wrong? That I was think, a great Paul Rudd. <laughs> I think that you need to just. Uh, I support Paul Rudd. He's from Kansas City. That's where I'm yeah. from. Yeah, I th- whatever. Whatever. I, let's I don't cast agree. the rest. Okay. Let's, let's, let's do the rest. Let's do the rest of the brothers and see where I guess, we go. I guess I think that, like, my cast is, like, very, um, uh, you'd have to have, it's kind of like an all or nothing, at least with the brothers. Okay. They kind of all fit together. So do mine. Really? Yeah. Who are you, Who's next? Who are you going to get, like, what? Jake. Um, Dan- who's going to be next? Like, Daniel Day-Lewis? Nope. <laughs> Jake. James Franco. Jake is James. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. That's a very good one. Thank you. He would also fit into my cast. I've got, and that's a that's a great pick. I've got Vince Vaughn as Jake, um, but we're gonna go with James Franco. I don't <laughs> think that's much of a. I don't Vince, think that much of a. Much he's of, supposed to be fit. Is he? Yeah. Well, whatever. We'll give him a personal trainer. All right. Well, Vince Vaughn is like, yeah, he's way he's, too old. He's he's early fifties, but yeah, like I said, I mean, my cast is a little older, but the dad is also a little older too. Mm. Well, he chose my dad, so. Right. Gotta keep it in line. Drew. Drew. Here we go. Uh, my Drew is Ben Stiller. Do you try at this? Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. You also, do you, do you, what, what do you, what do you not like, uh, Night at the Museum? <laughs> Incredible. Fantastic movie. Um, Drew, Jake Gyllenhaal. Drew's Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, like, yes, for sure. Could see that. <sighs> I will give you Paul Rudd if you give me. Franco and Gyllenhaal. Done. Because I am, We're shaking I'm, hands. I'm very against, I'm very against, uh, Joaquin. Joaquin okay, as, yeah, I got especially it. Especially with those, those other two. <laughs> I think they all kind of work together, but. I could just see Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenix, he's just like got a cigarette and he's just like, yeah, like, mm, I love making copies, like, I'm uh, Joaquin Phoenix and he's like wearing something. How many Joaquin Phoenix movies have you seen? Will you name I've them? I've seen exactly, I don't think I've seen one. 
honestly, all so the way through. I've seen all this parts. trash talking, all this trash talking, thinking you know best. No, I've seen Walk the Line. Yeah, where he plays like he's it's a biopic um, based on Johnny Cash's life. So he's like doing a thing. He's trying to be Johnny he's, Cash. I, I guess I guess with all with the things that I've seen, like the bits and pieces, you're right. I always just feel like Joaquin like, Phoenix is doing a thing. Could you not imagine Joaquin Phoenix in her as Matt? I could. Yeah, that's what I like, envision. I guess. Like you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's. It like, wasn't Paul like Rada. cool Joaquin. It was I, like is timid Joaquin. Joaquin. Yeah. How old is Joaquin Phoenix? He is. I guess. I guess Matt's the oldest. I mean, he was actually younger than I thought he was. He's 45. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, that is not younger than I thought he was. Yeah. Okay. I'll I think Paul Rudd would be Paul a great Rudd. man. Anyway. Okay. All right, great. Great. Um, we have our cast. We got we got our cast. I'm so pumped. So you want to do a, uh, a little what we watching, what we going to watch? What we watching. Your girl's been watching a lot of Queer Eye. If anyone follows me on Instagram, they'll see I got a haircut. Why? Because I've been watching Queer Eye and I felt like I needed one. You felt like that was like really part of your inspiration. I mean, like, I mean, like you also, you hadn't had your haircut since, for, since like the fall. Okay. We don't have to confess. Sorry. <laughs> Um, also you've never had your haircut ever um kind of i don't know it was like my life is kind of in transition right now and i just felt like new me new do new life great great so a lot of queer eye i finished um a podcast that i highly recommend and i've been listening to this as i have been uh moving things and things like that it's called the other latif and it is uh, a product of Radio Lab, and it's about this. It's about Guantanamo Bay, and it is about this guy named Latif Nasser who has been incarcerated in Guantanamo Bay because he might have had something to do with the Taliban um, in 9/11. It's really good, and it's worth a listen for sure. It's about six episodes, and it just talks a lot about Guantanamo Bay and the um, horrible things that go on there and why this guy may or may not have done the things that the u.s government says he did um but at the very least he was going to be he was literally going to be released and sent back to his home mm-hmm. um but then like something happened the paperwork fell through or something and so he's been at guantanamo bay for like another four years oh my god even though he was basically cleared to leave crazy so anyway Ugh. worth a listen um uh, but sad sad yeah a lot of bad things in our world Mm-hmm. sending all the blessings prayers and vibes for sure about the state of our universe what do we have on the docket for next week sarah well next week we are going to have another special guest Ooh. which you will find out soon that special guest faithful listeners yes um but i'm really excited about it it's a play called gruesome playground injuries which i directed last fall mm-hmm. and Great it's it's fantastic really short read um and yeah i'm really excited to talk about it with this person yeah that's all i'm gonna say cool gruesome playground injuries next week thanks everybody thanks for tuning in we will see you good morning for... and good night just kidding that's the oh yeah something else we've watched is the earliest show oh yeah the earliest show on youtube with ben schwartz pretty funny watch it <laughs> it's goofy anyways anyways uh ba da ba Sarah, I have loved listening to the playwrights on Anchor and Spotify. It's been so great. Oh my gosh, you love listening to yourself? I love listening to the sound of my own voice. It's just so soothing. (laughs) I'm so 
happy for you. Thank you. I only wish that there was some way I could let the playwrights know like how much I appreciated their podcast. Well, the, it actually exists. No way. How do I? What do I? What? So if you go to anchor.fm slash the playwrights, there's like three little buttons. One says listen on Spotify. One says support. And one says massage. N- it actually says message. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> so you're going to click that um, little button and you can leave us an audio message and we might put it on our podcast. Yeah, we'll feature you on on a future episode. Yeah. So we'll have the chance to have multiple guests. It'll be fun. Yeah. So head to anchor.fm slash the playwrights. Leave us a little message and we will fit you in on a future episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you and good night. Thank you.